Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and pointy-headed whales. First of all, the freedom of a woman to choose belongs to her and her alone. And Mr. Poilievre talked about social conservatives. Let's talk about that. He still won't tell you his position of whether he is pro-choice or pro-life. I believe in freedom of choice on that issue. I already said that at the very beginning. So I, I don't know what you missed. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you were. I don't know if you were listening. Today, the American abortion debate has entered Canada's political chat. Sigh. Major, major sigh. And a recent survey found many public servants are afraid to speak to the politicians they serve. Is there a culture that's stifling evidence-based policy? Joining me this week from Vancouver, Lena Minifi, co-founder of Ricochet and founder of Stories First. Oh my God, it's been so long. Welcome back. Good morning. Happy to be back. (laughs) From Montreal, Emily Nicola, host of the new Canadaland podcast, Detour, which debuted on Saturday. Hi, Emily. Hi, Fatma. It's good to be here. And joining us for the very first time, all the way from Ottawa, <laughs> Raisa Patel, national politics reporter with the Toronto Star. Welcome. Excited to be here. Let's get into it. So in Canada right now, politicians of every federal party are talking about abortion. Why? Because Americans are talking about it. And when America talks about something, we follow. So just to quickly recap, earlier this month, Politico leaked a draft majority opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court, which would overturn Roe v. Wade, the case that guaranteed federal constitutional protections to abortion rights. Now, it's important to note that the American and Canadian situations are totally different. Roe v. Wade rested on the right to privacy. In Canada, abortion was decriminalized in 1998 in a Supreme Court of Canada case titled R. v. Morgenthaler, which found that the laws restricting abortion violated the charter rights of, quote, security of the person. Now, fun fact, when this decision was released, the charter of rights was only six years old. So this was a major, major deal. Brian Mulroney tried to create a law around abortion access soon after, but it was defeated in Senate. So now it's left to provincial oversight. Abortion is not criminal, but you're not entitled to access, and access varies widely across the country, as I'm sure we'll talk about. So that brings us to the last couple of weeks. When Trudeau was asked about Roe v. Wade, here's what he said. In Canada, every woman has a right to a safe and legal abortion, and this government will never back down on defending and promoting women's rights in Canada and around the world. 
Then last Wednesday, the Liberal government announced they're spending $3.5 million on two new projects to improve access to abortion. In 2022, in this country, sexual and reproductive rights are human rights, plain and simple. Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos says this isn't because of Roe v. Wade. They're just fulfilling a promise they already made. Raisa, I'm throwing you straight into the fire here. When the government says these decisions have nothing to do with the United States, do you believe them? It's a good question. And I mean, the minister is correct in saying that this is an issue that the government has been on top of for a long time. I think if you look at the timing of the you know announcements last week, there's kind of two things that are interesting about that. Obviously, this issue is in public consciousness now because of the U.S. Supreme Court draft opinion. It was also the day of the conservative leadership debate, the first official one. We know that abortion is is a bit of a wedge issue in that party within the conservatives and between the liberals and the conservatives. So there were questions last week about the timing. If you want to add a third, you know, prong to this situation, it was also the the annual March for Life uh, in Ottawa, where, you know, we see pro uh, or, or anti-abortion rather activists sort of descend on on the parliamentary precinct. So there were a lot of reasons, perhaps, that factored into that decision last week. He's correct in saying that it's been an issue they've talked about. But what's interesting is that the $3.5 million came from a $45 million pot in the 2021 budget. It's not really that new. The announcement last week didn't really need to be made with several ministers and, and people from abortion and reproductive health organizations. So I think it might be fair to say that that there were some links. In the same budget where they announced this big pot, right, I also noted that they promised to update the Canada Health Act to more clearly require provinces to offer public funding for abortions. Now, Emily, I've seen a lot of chatter from Canadian advocates and experts say that we need to update the Canada Health Act and we need to to see abortion included in it. So why is that important? And, and do you believe the government when they say they're serious about it? I believe they're serious. I wish it was only for reasons of, you know, deep core values. But I do believe that they're serious because it also pays off politically. It just makes the conservatives look so bad when the issue of abortion is on the front row. So if they're doing this, I think it's because it's the right thing to do. And I think there's a lot of of people within government that believe it's the right thing to do. But at the same time, I also think that it's politically... It's money, <laughs> because if they do it, it's just it's just going to create division within the Conservative Party. However, that being said, if we were to open up the Canada Health Act, it's like a little bit like the Constitution, where you're trying to do it for one thing, and then everything under the sun has to be looked at as well. And coming out of the pandemic, there's just so many things that people want to check uh, looking at the Canadian Health Act. So I don't believe it's actually feasible to just open it up only throw in something about abortion and then close it back up. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of interest groups uh, who want to also update it on a whole bunch of other reasons. It might actually be a good timing to do it because we're coming out of the pandemic. But at the same time, I I don't think it's going to be a simple endeavor. And there's going to be also people who want more of a place for the private sector uh, in Canada who could also use the pretext of the Canadian Health Health Act being looked at to also try to push those views as well. Can I just say no politician has said what Emily just said on the show? 
Honestly, it seems very show and tell to me. And Lena, I wonder mm-hmm. if you agree because, you know, Raisa was right. This all happened as the conservative leadership race was underway. We saw the interim leader of the conservative party, Candace Bergen, send out a memo telling conservative MPs not to talk about the issue. The statement that she put out said that the conservative party will not introduce legislation or reopen the abortion debate. But obviously abortion has come up in the leadership debate and the liberals are sort of, you know, fueling the fire as well. So what do you make of all of this? There's a huge percentage of, of the Conservative Party that doesn't want to talk about it. But there are those who want to. And we saw that in the last Conservative government as well. It was it was an issue that divided both of them um, under Harper as well. But, um, you know, Planned Parenthood saying like up to 25% of the Conservatives are, you know, basically pro-life. I'm curious as to whether it's increased in the years. I mean, I, we've seen like such a, a swing to the far right. We see our politics completely absorbed and uh, influenced by everything that America has done and everything that Trump has done. I'm curious if that number is even higher. I do think that there's lots of fundamental people who are sort of being reactivated and louder in Canada. And I, I think that they're not going to be too quiet for very much longer uh, if they say anything in public, which is why she said, basically, shut up. So. <laughs> Um, Raisa, you're watching this live. Is there anything constructive happening in this conversation on Parliament Hill? I mean, what could be interesting that we turn to now is a discussion perhaps on, you know, universal access to contraception. That's something that it is up to provincial governments to determine, but... It's something that, you know, the NDP's Jagmeet Singh has advanced. He has some power now with this deal he has with the Liberals. He would want to see that built into pharmacare. It's something that the NDP might be bringing up a couple times this week as well. The Ontario NDP have also pledged to do that too. And it obviously, you know, better access to contraception is doesn't you know, overlap 100% with abortion. There's many different reasons why someone would choose to get that procedure. So that point really needs to be made. But there are links and that might be one of the more concrete points that people are going to seize on now and and in the weeks to come where this this issue is concerned. It was interesting because I've been reading a lot about this and I learned that the NDP were the first major party to put legalized abortion in their official platform many, many years ago. So I'm curious to see whether the NDP as it is now can further the conversation to a more constructive place. And I wonder, Emily, what could a good reproductive rights framework look like for Canadian women? Oh, my God. So many things. (laughs) We've touched upon it already, but obviously there's different uh, degrees of access to uh, to mm-hmm. abortion and just medical services for women and just also trans men and just like people who who give birth in general. It really depends on province and province. Actually, Quebec is the place that has the most. I think we have like half of abortion clinics or services in the country are, are, are here or something like that. And there's huge gap uh, in Ontario uh, and definitely in Alberta as well. Just if you're outside of Calgary or Edmonton, good luck with that, as well as in Atlantic Canada. So there's that. Raja, you just mentioned contraception as well. Here in Quebec with Medicare, birth control is covered by provincial Medicare. That's not necessarily the thing across the country. If you get an IUD, that's also covered by Medicare, at least partially, that's not the case across the country. And so there's real costs if you're living in poverty. And there's some serious challenges as well for the LGBTQ communities if you're outside major cities. There's just so many healthcare providers that don't get it. And the last thing I will say within and what looks like a really big shopping list at this point is that 
<laughs> Actually, there's been a campaign here in Montreal a, a couple of years ago on the issue of obstetrical violences. So how even if you're trying to get healthcare, reproductive uh, healthcare, there's a lot of classism, sexism, racism that goes on that makes it actually dangerous uh, for some women to seek healthcare. There's been a really big um, news story that came out of the Radio-Canada show Enquête just last fall of uh, some Black women who had to go on to basically um, forced sterilization or did not actually consent to getting a hysterectomy. That's still an ongoing issue, and that's obviously something that's been documented as well for Indigenous women as well. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why some population might not actually trust you know, healthcare services. And even actually for middle-class people, there's still a lot of ways in which doctors don't necessarily respect women, don't necessarily respect the fact that they might be hurting when believe that it's just, you know, making this up. And so there's there's a lot of trauma that actually happens when women women do seek uh, reproductive health care, both before, after birth, all of that. And we need to be able to have an honest conversation about that because I feel, I feel like it's still something that a lot of women talk about, you know, on the hush-hush, but I'm not seeing a nationwide conversation about the issue of obstetrical violences. Well, it doesn't help when the politicians who are leading this conversation now, in response to something happening in America, are all men. Actions Canada has this chart that we'll link in the show notes that shows how abysmal access to abortion services is across the country. Like, some provinces and territories have a handful, sometimes even just one provider for women at great long distances. And Lena, I'm wondering if there's anything you'd want to add to the shopping list Emily's already started for us. It's... It's almost a very thorough shopping list. I, I agree with all, all the points and uh, especially experiences of sort of racialized, uh, motivated uh, violence within the medical system. BC obviously came out with a report saying that indigenous um, racism within the medical um, industry here was some of the worst across the country. I do know for sure that um, in northern BC that there's a huge lack of care. I mean, I come from islands, right? And uh, from rural area in BC. And yeah, there's maybe one provider. People have to like go hours and hours away to kind of see um, up north. And, you know, some people are still against it within that small, in those small communities. So people know your business. It's, it's really hard to get uh, medical service within the small communities as well. Um, it, it's still a problem in, in northern BC. There's also the issue of contraceptive uh, and birth control being linked to other kinds of diseases that actually people need to be taken care of. So there's so many other problems. <laughs> there's so many other issues uh, that these uh, these medicines can actually help and people in different stages of their life cycle from menstruation to menopause to perimenopause. So I think overall that we need to kind of look at it as life cycles mm -hmm. and also talk about sort of uh, getting access you know, in every part of a woman's life, not just in the birthing years. So we, we haven't had an all-female panel in a while. How are you all feeling watching Canadian politicians talk about, like, women's health services? Genuinely, like, personally, when you're watching this conversation or reading it, how, how are you all feeling? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that speaks for itself. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like, speaking for myself, I live somewhere where, 
you know, I, I don't have some of these problems that we've talked about in terms of reduced access and needing to, you know, travel somewhere else to, to access services. So I'm, I'm privileged in that sense. But, you know, when I just sort of look at the announcement that was made last week, like that's $3.5 million, not a lot of money for a procedure, a service that the government is calling essential, something that should be, you know, offered to all Canadians. And part of that money is for those seeking long distance abortion services. And it's just sort of crazy to me that the government is throwing money at this problem of people not being able to access services where they are, which is so critical to this debate. And maybe, you know, offering services where people are is is what we should be focusing on. I'm grateful that people are looking to it and making sure that abortion rights are going to be even more accessible in Canada if that's the intent. But at the same time, as I was saying, when you're part of the feminist movement, as I have been for many years, like you hear so many issues of just like women giving birth and like receiving procedures that they didn't want or having epidural, I think you call them in English, like basically pregnancy being treated as an illness by a profession that's been controlled by men for so many years. And I feel like the Me Too movement needs to happen on reproductive health rights. Like there's so many yeah. women being traumatized at different stages of their life. Would it be as a teenager? Would it be trying to seek abortion? Just trying to get pregnant and the kind of shit that doctors will, will tell them if they're over the age of 35, like geriatric pregnancy, like what the fuck? Like who invented that kind of vocabulary? <laughs> and then the actual experience of it, where you're basically treated as often for many women as someone who, who's just, you know, doesn't have any kind of agency on their bodies anymore because you're carrying some, someone else and that's not how the medical system treats you. And then going through menopause. And so there's all of that going on. And the only thing that I'm hearing from Canada is like, we're so grateful we're not the U.S., <laughs> right? If politicians are only happy that they're not as bad as the U.S., It's just making a conversation that needs to happen in Canada more difficult. And that's what I resent. Well, women's issues aren't just limited to this one thing, right? Like, yes, it's an important thing. And I would add, like, mm-hmm. to your list, Emily, that you just said, I would add, like, girls getting periods and how to deal with that as a problem oh as well. God, just yes. like the lack of access to menstrual health and education is a huge issue here. And, and how expensive that is. And how expensive that is. And just the lack of, like, doctors available to help you <laughs> if you have problems with that. It, mm-hmm. it, it's like an entire, as Lena said, the life cycle of a woman isn't addressed very well through our healthcare system. And... I'm honestly appalled that Canadian politicians are using what's happening in America to just say, we're great, but we have some things to do, and here's, we're going to throw $3.5 million at it. I think that's honestly disgusting and appalling, and I don't understand how they're just getting away with it for so many weeks. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order I'd like to uh, bring to the floor. What is your point of order, Alina? 
I would like to bring up that the Impact Review Board just rejected a request from Baffin Island Iron Mines Corp asking to increase mining of iron ore on the northern tip of Baffin Island due to pointy-headed whales, the narwhals. And I am so happy that they've done that. Of course, the federal government has to now uh, take that and decide uh, if they will um, back that uh, rejection. Uh, but I would like to talk about the round-headed whales. So if you were to <laughs> reject the same reasoning for the pointy-headed whales uh, in the north around the Arctic, wouldn't you have the same logic for the round-headed whales on the coast for the Trans Mountain Pipeline? I'm just saying that this seems like a complete hypocritical uh, decision that they have to kind of face. So that's my point of order today. Um, not a point of order, but wait, why are they discriminating whales now? Like, can we just like be equal on something? Yes. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Emily? I'd like to bring up the Twitter headache that happened. Uh, we're recording on Monday, so just last night, actually, as people were reading the news of the Buffalo terrorist attack against black folks um, just so, so near to the Canadian border, right? It's like Buffalo is like Niagara Falls, basically. And then uh, former liberal minister uh, Catherine McKenna went out there uh, waving the Canadian emoji flag and basically saying that um, she's so grateful to be in Canada because like, la la la, and like, yeah, like human rights are important in Canada and like she's so grateful to be in Canada. And then she got racialed. <laughs> she got racialed, girl. Uh, and that was that was really good. But I guess my point of order is, can we not do that? Like, I know we've just talked about it with abortion rights, but like, can we not always trying to say, like, we're so grateful to be Canada when we've just like only have like a gazillion terrorist attacks spurred by white supremacists here as well. But could we just not? Like, it's so insensitive. And I know that it's coming from a place of, like, I'm hurting to trying to see what's in the U.S. And I wish we don't have that in our country. I'm getting the place it's coming from. But it's actually so insensitive. And I feel like how a person that's so visible got racial actually just last night might be a good time for everybody who saw that to realize that this is actually a really, really bad take and that in 2022, it doesn't pay off politically anymore. So if we could just like everyone get the message that regardless of your intention, that is really not the right way to comment that kind of stories, uh, that'd be fabulous. Not a point of order, but, you know, the backbench could endorse a ban on politicians just tweeting during intense news events. Just just stop. Just mm -hmm. don't do it. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. It, what is your point of order, Raisa? Uh, big surprise. It's it's the same point of order. <laughs> you know, I almost think we need a moment of silence. And by silence, I mean a moment where we just sigh for one minute straight or maybe longer than a minute. Let's because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this tweet <laughs> came less than one year after a Muslim family was mown down in their city after going out for an evening walk. It's coming up on a year of the discovery of these unmarked graves um, at the former sites of residential schools, which sort of set the tone for, for many months last year politically. Some of the rhetoric that was allegedly behind this incident in Buffalo, we think it has also cropped up in the convoy protests that we saw in Canada's very capital, where, you know, that former minister represented a riding for many years. Miss me with this because it's 2015 energy. It's <laughs> it's 2022. We cannot be doing this anymore. 
I understand her point in that she believes that it is that she is blessed and lucky to live in Canada. That is her reality. That is not the reality that is shared by many people. Not only was it a bad take, but she did, you know, double down on that belief many, many times on Twitter that, yes, there are problems. I recognize there are problems, but I'm still so grateful to live here. And that just demonstrates that maybe the ratioing didn't work in this case. Like, like not a point of order, but like the Buffalo shooter was also inspired by the New Zealand shooter who was inspired by the Quebec shooter. And do politicians really have such short term memories that they don't see the big picture and the problems? Like, I just but I'm also really surprised that Michelle Rempel had a better take than Catherine McKenna. Like, it, it's just it, it blows my mind that. Some politicians just don't get it and keep not getting it, even though so much has happened and we've learned so much in theory, at least, or at least you'd think. So, yeah, neither of you had a real point of order, but okay, collective sigh on three. Ready? (laughs) One, two, three. (sighs) So there's a saying in public service, fearless advice and loyal implementation. In other words, whoever the government of the day is, if you work in bureaucracy, you tell them the truth based on the evidence. But then you ultimately follow their orders. Now, a report came out recently suggesting a lot of public servants don't feel like they can do that in Ottawa. They're afraid to speak truth to the politicians they serve. This isn't the type of thing that makes big headlines, but I want to talk about it because this type of thing affects how policy in this country is made, which means it affects everyone who lives here. This report came from two think tanks, the Institute on Public Governance and the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government, as well as the St. Francis University. The point of it was to figure out how public servants feel about their jobs. The sample size wasn't very big. They had conversations with over 42 high-level public servants, whatever that means, and about 165 responses to a survey that they sent out to a couple of thousand people, 2,353 to be exact. But the results of this survey and these conversations is really, really interesting. Some of the top concerns, aside from the inability to provide fearless advice, were around the independence of the public service, the effectiveness of parliamentary committees, and the politicization of issues and debates. Now, Lena, I thought I'd start with you. When you sort of read this report, what stood out to you? The highlights that stood out to me was that there's right now, and it's not just Canada experiencing this, but there's a failing trust in government. There's actually a failing trust within all experts. I'd say that this is just sort of prevalent within our society at large. But the decline in sharing fearless advice is really interesting. I don't know how many Canadian bureaucrats and politicians have always been known for sharing absolute fearless advice in the first place. So I don't know how you measure that benchmark. And then also sort of like looking for where like where they're going to i think getting confused by their goals one sense that kind of stood out to me in the report was talking about the dichotomy between looking at social issues mm-hmm. and solving inequalities to comparing um what the government and what the bureaucrats can do and what their jobs are. And I found that to be weird that that they set it up as a dichotomy in this report, because I think that's actually under their purview, you know. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to hear uh, what else the panel thinks. There's one quote in the report that particularly struck me. It was from one of the participants, and they said, and I'm quoting, the last three months watching Parliament, it struck me, the blurring of the roles between the ministers and public servants. I think if you do not solve it, then it calls the question on the neutrality of the public service. 
Ian Stewart refusing to provide documents and defending the neutrality of the public service is an example. So now this person was referring to the former head of the Public Health Agency of Canada, Ian Stewart, who refused to turn documents over to a parliamentary committee relating to the firing of two scientists from the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg. He was reprimanded by the Speaker of the House for doing so. It made major, major headlines. Um, Emily, what do you make of that comment and just, you know, the broader context of the report it appeared in? I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised because, uh, I mean... There was a lot of issues with independence of the public service and ability of public servants to speak out under the Harper years. But there was a specific style to it, basically. Uh, it's an issue, I think, under every government, but there's a specific flavor to each government. And I feel like we've seen enough now of this liberal government to know that one of their specific flavors or ways to stifle independence from the public servants would be loyalty, um, because that's also something that's highly valued within the Liberal caucus itself, right? So if we're seeing uh, MPs who are deemed as not being hyper-partisan and loyal enough being punished, and we've seen that over the years quite a number of times, and then it's no surprise to me that you would have the same kind of dynamic happening with the public service and people being like, hey, we're all playing on the same team. Why aren't you being a team player? And that being the kind of language that's being used internally to create a culture where uh, people are not uh, free to agree to disagree. I'm also curious about where the civil society ecosystem plays into all of this, uh, mm -hmm. because sometimes it's governments in specific fields. They have those organizations that they kind of rely to to give them advice. And it's a little bit incestuous. We've seen it, obviously, with the We Scandal, but there might be other fields as well where there's just a couple of key organizations and they're relying on them as external experts to be giving them advice on their policy more than the public service as well. So I'm also curious about, you know, where does... In, depending on department, if, if that also plays a role. Um, and the other thing is access to information. It's something that has come up uh, just recently provincially as well, where basically you had uh, journalists trying to, you know, have uh, access to information requests and having the whole document, except for a couple of words, come out just like blanked. And mm -hmm. um if, if that's something that, that's also, you know, an issue more and more increasingly for journalists, I think that's something that journalists have a role uh, to say something because it's it's basically the relationship between public service and journalism that's that's at play here. And so if, if, if public servants are being punished or having to go higher up and higher up in the hierarchy before they can just give a simple answer to the public about certain information internally. That's also something that's obviously, uh, you know, an issue in terms of freedom of press and, and transparency. And that's something that the Trudeau government obviously campaigned on as well in 2015, saying that they would, you know, return transparency to government. And obviously with this report, we're saying that there's still some issues for us to actually have that as a reality. Yeah, I was thinking about that, too, how in 2015, uh, Justin Trudeau talked about unmuzzling government scientists, specifically mm -hmm. letting them speak freely. Raisa, you're a national politics reporter, so you're dealing with the public service more than any of us. Um, how much of this report resonates with you and, and what are your observations about what it found? You know, what was so interesting to me was that, like, you look through this report and you see how closely tied the pandemic was to the findings. Mm -hmm. And I and I know that, you know, it was conducted during the pandemic, so fair enough. But I'd be so curious to know what the researchers would have covered before the pandemic. Because, you know, on the one hand, like, misinformation and polarization might have been less of a thing. But 
this was the event more than any other time in in history, probably, where Canadians wondered how the government was making decisions. Mm-hmm. Where where were they getting their advice from? Where was if you like did like a trickle down sort of a situation? Where was it coming from? And we know that communications at all levels of government over you know certain rules and decisions was was really messy at times. Um, you know, certain decisions or restrictions or measures were were questioned by the public. You know, the travel rules. How were they coming to those decisions? Who was advising them? Is it is it scientists? Is it an advisor? It was it was hard for us to get the answer to those questions. I'll say that my inbox was like often full of members of the public saying, you know, where where is it coming from? Where is that information coming from? And and if the Trudeau government did want to unmuzzle scientists as as they said they wanted to, then this was the perfect opportunity for us to sort of see that in action and and to get better access to these people making decisions because it was it was very hard to, you know, get an interview with with Dr. Tam or Dr. New, for example, or let alone people in other levels of the department. So the findings are really worrisome to me in that context. You know, this notion that public servants felt like they have to toe some sort of political line rather than providing objective advice in this huge global situation where we needed objective advice more than anything. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it has implications on everything, right? We, we've been hearing about how, for example, the documents around um, the the cases for Indigenous kids who went to residential schools are, are being held back as well. And that's a public service problem. Or even just, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, emissions numbers and who releases them and when they get released and stuff. There's just so much that the public service has access to. And the fact that we're not seeing it or there's no clear paths of communications from them to the public is really, really concerning. Well, and, and then the report, too, was saying that actually communications in sort of a press way or publicity way was being focused on. So events would be talked about, but actually not the how or why uh, bureaucrats are coming to certain decisions. So there was no information behind recents, like like Emily was saying, but it actually just focuses on the PR and the press of it all. Emily, why is this important? Uh, I mean, it's important all the time, but I'm going to say that some of that is timeless in a sense that when you have an organization that's deeply hierarchical, it's like the more hierarchical it is, the harder it is to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. Because basically for us, for, for you to have the right to an opinion, you have to give what, like 10 years of service minimum, <laughs> something like that. And, and by that time, you're so ingrained into the system that what you have to say might not be that challenging anymore. So there's something that's specific to how public service is organized that actually turns out a lot of like young people mm-hmm. from entering uh, public service as well because of the way that it's that it's structured in a way that's just so pyramidal. Um, and is about basically people staying for years and years and years and years and years before they can have a say. But I also think that there's something that's contextual. And I'm not surprised that, for example, with, first of all, a minority government, um, people might be feeling even more insecure in terms of uh, trying to control the message and uh, information that comes out about the government. And then I think the other thing as well, what we've been seeing in the context of the pandemic in many provincial governments as well, 
is just that people are used to just monopolize the message, monopolize the attention as well and have those, you know, have that kind of like state of exception as a way to rule as well, which which tends to stifle counterpowers. And so I think there is stuff that's happening that's probably just, you know, policy 101 that, you know, that if you have those ingredients uh, happening at the same time, that's what the result is going to be. So if you have a government that feels insecure, they tend to control the, the communication more, tend to look for loyalty more. And then if you have a government that used to just work in like emergency mode and and not you know have democracy lessen as a result of that there there's also going to be some bad habits taken there and if those ingredients are happening in an organization that's inherently hierarchical and rewards loyalty and people paying their times and, and just like staying there forever obviously i'm not sure that you have the best scenario in terms of trying to create a culture where people will speak their mind freely yeah and Risa, i'll let you end this conversation because you deal with the public service more than most. But, you know, I've tried to speak to the public service many times about climate issues or social justice issues. And it's very rare that I can I can even just speak to them to understand an issue better, not even to like quote them in my story, because the public service are the real experts. Politicians aren't necessarily the experts on an issue. It's the people who've worked in the bureaucracy for years and years and years that know the issue back and forth and know how how the policies are made and why they work the way they work. When the public's listening to this conversation or or thinking about the public service, what do you want them to keep in mind? I mean, it's a great question. And I'll maybe use like a bit of an analogy here, which is that I it it was interesting to me how many parallels I saw to the journalism industry when reading this report, which is that, you know, in journalism, we have like this very strict notion of objectivity. Don't have opinions on things. Don't let your your personal experience or beliefs you know, bleed into how you approach the job in any way, shape or form. And I'm very grateful that we're having discussions now about, you know, breaking that down. And and it, you know, kind of goes back to like that hierarchy thing that Emily was talking about, where you have to, you know, reach a certain state in the journalism industry or, or be a columnist, for example, to have an opinion and be able to sort of affect change at that level. And, I hope and I wonder if those conversations are also happening in the public service, mm-hmm. because what we want from a public service is people who can use their lived experiences and beliefs and opinions to kind of shape the advice that they give, not necessarily in, in like an overbearing way, but just we know from experience, especially in these discussions in journalism, that it makes the work that you do better. Fundamentally, mm-hmm. that's what it does. And that's what we want to see from the people that are advising our politicians who who are at the root of all these policy decisions. That's what we want to see. And and I hope one day in like a utopia that they have the freedom <laughs> to be able to do that. Until then, shout out to the public servants. They do a lot of work and, and I and I hope they're doing okay. But you know, if any of them are listening, reach out. We'd love to talk to you. We want to hear what's going on. <laughs> Raisa and I specifically, but I'm sure Lena and Emily too. <laughs> I mean, shout out specifically to like the black public servants suing the government for like systemic yeah. racism, yeah. right? So yeah, there's some people who are giving their years and it leads them to having a voice and there's people who are giving their years and then they give some more years. And I think, yeah, kind of what you're speaking to, Raisa, is like if we don't fix that and then I don't know how much of the public service expertise is actually going to be accessible to the public, but also to the government itself. All 
right, on that note, let's adjourn. That's the backbench. Next week, we'll have another deep dive conversation, this time about drug policy. Stay tuned for that. Until then, send us your questions, your concerns, your rants. You can email us backbench at candleland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. Lena, don't be a stranger for too long again, but where do people follow all the amazing stuff you're doing? You can find me on Instagram at Lena Minifee. Same thing on Twitter at Lena Minifee. Emily, beyond the new Candleland show, where can people follow your work? Yeah, people do uh, need to find me on, on Ditto on the Candleland main feed. Uh, but yes, otherwise, uh, Le Devoir Montreal Gazette and as well uh, on Twitter. And Raisa, I hope you'll come back. Until then, where do people <laughs> follow what you're doing? You can find me at thestar.ca or on Twitter at rspatel. Don't send her hate, otherwise I will come for, for you. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. My work is on the Narwhal. So in this episode, we talked about how people behind the scenes are so important. The conversations we had today were informed by a bunch of reporting by a bunch of people, including Catherine May, Tristan Hopper, Dale Smith, Politico, and many, many more. There are some links in the show notes for further reading. Please do go check them out. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Althorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.